53, verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Please be seated. One of the more difficult things in my week, especially as the month wanes on, is a question I ask myself, generally starting in about 35 or 40 minutes. Oh no, what am I going to preach next week? You know, you want those things to tie together. There's a couple of ways to study the Bible. One of those is systematically, verse by verse, so you don't have to ask yourself that question. I have chosen not to do that. And so, generally, every week I ask myself, what are we going to study? Sometimes there is a loving soul who would call me, or text me, or email me. By the way, if you ever email me, I'm not going to get that very often. So if you want to get in contact, contact with me quickly, call me or text me. And they'll ask me a question, and they'll say, would you, next time you preach, would you explain or talk about this? I love those people. Because they have answered the hardest question of my week. Now I no longer have to figure out what we're going to study, but now we have an idea of where to go. Can you explain Isaiah 53, verse number 11? I don't understand who it's talking about. Well, really, it's talking about a couple of beings. But we're going to get there, and by way of getting there... You and I are going to have to deal first with uh, the Bible itself. It is the fact that every page of the Bible we see the blood of Jesus Christ. From Malachi backward we see the foretelling of Jesus who is coming. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we see Jesus while he's here and from Romans throughout the book of Revelation, we see this one overlapping theme, Jesus will return. Within those four books of, of the Gospels, we see Jesus' physical life and death. We see him being born of a virgin. We see him living a life of 33 some odd years. We see him going through certain things that, that we can understand. And, and we see him die that day. We see him being put in that tomb. We see something there that, that really we don't understand. Oh, we might understand those things uh, intellectually, but what we see that we don't understand is we see him walk out of that grave. Been to many a funeral in my life, many a tomb. What I've never seen is a back door. You see, those things 
and those tombs and those caskets that we buy are, are designed for a purpose, aren't they? They're never designed for that grave to empty. And yet it will be that one day that we understand exactly what the idea of being resurrected is all about as we follow Jesus, who James would call the first fruits. And so as you and I look at Jesus in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are some 300 plus prophecies of Jesus when he's coming. Some of those prophecies deal with Jesus as king and, and as a redeemer. And some of those deal with Jesus as a sacrifice. And in the Jewish mindset, they said there's no way possible that God is talking about one individual person. If he's going to be king and if he's going to reign over that kingdom, he can't be this sacrifice. And so when they began to say that, they began to formulate two different messiahs. One who's called the Davidic Messiah. Guess why? He's going to follow that line of David. He's going to become the king. He's going to become the leader. He's going to be the one that leads the nation of Israel back to its glory. But they can't deny the Old Testament prophecies that would deal with the sacrificial Messiah. And so they call him the Josephine Messiah after the pattern of Joseph, sold into slavery, uh, works as a slave, is exalted in his slavery, but still is a sacrifice and works as a slave. And so there are two different Messiahs that are going to come, one who's going to be the sacrifice and one who's going to be the king. Is that true? Shake your head this way. It ain't true. There's only going to be one, and he's only going to come the way God has said he would. The servant that's seen in Isaiah 53 is the same that's seen as the king all the way throughout that Old Testament, those Old Testament books. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. It should go through 53, verse 12. But apparently, I do not know where the two key and the three key are located. So we're going to read this section of Scripture because there's an unfortunate thing that happens after inspiration is closed in the first century. There's an unfortunate thing that happens about 1,500 years later. About 1,500 years later, someone comes through these Scriptures and said, you know, if we were to chunk them out into chapters, it would make it a whole lot easier to find what we're looking for. So when you and I read this section of Scripture, understand that this chapter break is not here in the original, and really it shouldn't be. It's one complete thought beginning in Isaiah chapter 52, and he begins and he goes through Isaiah 53, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall exalt and extol and be very high. And as many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than any of the sons of men, so that he shall sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouth at him. For that which he had not been told, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, 
they shall consider who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he hath put him to grief. And when he shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And here's the question, verse 11. And he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he beareth the sins of their iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion of him with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with transgressor, and he bare the sin of many. And he made intercession for the transgressor. Now, There are some things that are found, some themes that are found within the Bible that are very difficult to preach and to teach on. Isn't that right? The first job I ever had, I worked with Cliff Goodwin, and when I got there, he was teaching a Revelation class on Wednesday night and a Daniel class on Sunday morning. And you know what he said? Don't ever do that. Just this past week. Michael said to me, let me give you some advice from an old preacher. I said, all right. He said, don't ever (laughs) have a sermon series in Revelation. Some of those things are just difficult. Some of those things uh, take a lot of time and study and preparation. And even, even when you've put in that time and study and preparation, sometimes you look at it and you go, huh? Then there are other fundamental truths found in the Bible that Uh, As the late Brother Cates would say, if you can't preach about that, you can't preach. Isaiah 53 is one of those chapters, 52 into 53. If you can't preach about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, you can't preach. Brethren, within that 
horrific weekend of his life lies all of the hope of mankind. And some 750 years before he is born, and some 735 years before his mother is born, we find out about that weekend. We find out about a weekend that will redeem us back to God. Isaiah 52 and 53, what's going to happen? Isaiah 52 begins by saying his visage will be so marred. That sounds like a great terminology. But the problem is, uh, as you're reading in the old King James Version, we don't talk like that. So, Let's see what we can do about putting this into 2022 Hot Springs, Arkansas language. Are you ready? He will be beaten to a point to where he's not even recognizable as a man. Not recognizable as Jesus the Christ, recognizable as a man. Everything about him will be taken away from him. And brethren, it's going to be taken by us. And in the same vein, it's going to be given for us. First of all, he's going to give up his dignity. His visage will be so marred. We don't want people to see us in our unperfect state. My wife calls me a cartoon character every morning. Somehow when I sleep, my hair on my head just sort of goes up into a point. That's not funny. And she calls me Jimmy Neutron, if you, any of you from the 90s know who he is. I don't think I want to teach class like that. I don't really think I want to go outside and cut my grass just like that. And so we, we make ourselves presentable. This is not the case with Jesus. Isaiah 52 and 53 says you're going to see him as the lowest point. And as a matter of fact, his dignity is going to be so taken from him that it was the custom of the Romans to crucify people nude. He's on full display. He's going to be rejected of the men around him. <laughs> One's going to sell him out. One's going to say, I don't even know who he is. Still, even to this day, you find him being rejected by men. Don't be one of those men. We find him in Isaiah 53, bearing our grief. This is an internal idea of bearing our grief. Why? Because the weight of sin on him is almost to the point where he cannot bear it. You find him in 
John chapter 19, as he's nailed to that cross, saying these words in Aramaic, which would have been his natural tongue, natural language that everyone around him would have been using, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which the Holy Spirit had uh, opportunity to translate for us, which is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it almost sounds like Jesus is saying God has walked away from him as if not to help him. And Jesus remains helpless on this cross. Brethren, let me tell you something. You ready? If Jesus wanted to get off that cross at that time, he would have. Really what he's saying as he's crying out, and he says it multiple times, the, the tense would let us know that is why have you left me down here? Why have you left me in this? What else has to happen? It's an internal struggle. He knows, he obviously knows that it has to happen. Parents, do you know, you know when, when the spanking has to happen? that just make your day? You know, it's got to happen. And we hid our face from him. We didn't want to look at the mess that we caused. And we should have. He's despised for us. He's smitten for us. He's wounded and afflicted and bruised for us. The skin that overlaid the sinless Son of God is cut because of me. He's oppressed. This idea goes back to the garden where his oppression begins. Not in the back. But when he comes face to face with the 500 soldiers, this idea of oppression happens there. <clears throat> we, we, won't, uh, we won't take a poll because we don't really want to know, but we'll just think of this in our minds. Imagine if you could being at your job tomorrow and some of Hot Springs' finest walks in and puts that cold steel on your uh, on your wrist, behind your back. You are now oppressed. You know when those come off? Those handcuffs? When they decide to take them off. We find him in the garden being oppressed and arrested. And the unfortunate ideas about the arrest, the trial, the beating, the crucifixion, he knows it's not going to stop. It can't quit until God's plan to redeem us back to him is finished. And I'm grateful for that. If at any point in time Jesus wanted to or would have said, I, I'm not going to do this. 
Now, we could still meet in this room, but we'd meet as a bunch of lost folks. He's cut off. If all of those things don't say it clearly, cut off should say it. He dies. He is no longer on this earth in the land of the living. Isaiah 53, I have the option to look at the, the price of sin. And we see it begin in John chapter 19 and verse 1. We see those stripes and bruises and afflictions, wounds and smiting being laid onto the back of Jesus the Christ. Just like Isaiah said it would happen some 750 years before. Isaiah 53. It's a, it's a foretelling of what might be the worst travesty of justice in human history on this earth and at the same time the greatest day for saving humanity ever seen. He was railroaded to die and without his death we don't have salvation. What a vicious circle. He wasn't supposed to die. He, he should not have died. He violated zero laws. We, humanity, killed him because we did. And he saved us. What a weird circle that is. What a circle that, that can only be seen in the majesty and in the wisdom of God Himself who says, I'm going to send my Son who will be sinless. And you're going to take Him according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. And with wicked hands, you're going to crucify Him. And through the shedding of that blood, that's how you're going to be saved. When God came up with the plan to save man through the blood of his son, he never asked me how I think I ought to do it. But if he did, I don't think I would have ever come up with that way. But I'm not God. Why did he die that way? Why are we shown some or 750 years before he's even born? Why are we showed how he's going to die? He dies this way and in this fashion because of the value that you have toward God. Notice uh, some things in uh, beginning of verse number 2. When we shall see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. 
He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrow, and yet we esteemed him stricken. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Legally, as you read that, there is someone in that section of Scripture who is guilty. And there is someone who is not. Legally, when you read that, there is a group of people called we. And then there is this other one, he. Every facet of that particular section of Scripture points the guilt to we. And points the sacrifice to he. Because of my guilt, because of my shame, because of my sin, because of my sorrow, because of my despising, he died. And he died because of the value of my soul that at times I don't value. Do you know what your value is? Let me show you your value. Let's go to verse 11. Let's see if we can explain this verse. Because we've done an okay job, I think, at explaining every other thing and avoiding that one. So since verse 11 was the one I was asked about, let's look at it. And he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge he shall, my righteous servant, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. First, in language, in order to define who the pronoun he is, the first word, it has to go back to its closest antecedent. Is that even a word you know? You guys awake? All right. Is that a word you know? You know what antecedent is? It means it goes back to the, fir- to the previous um, noun that would be identifiable not as a pronoun, so that we can find out who the he is, because there's two people mentioned here. It goes back to the word in verse number 10, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. For us to think about that word as it's spelled in all capital letters, as Jesus the Christ, or the one who will be Jesus the Christ in John chapter 1, has us off kilter. This word in the English is spelled Y-H-W-H. And it really, really it finds itself being unpronounceable because within that Hebrew tongue, uh, that name was so revered there were no vowels added to it. So which one are you going to put there? It's called in the circle of people who have a lot more 
letters behind their names than I do. It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the formalized Jewish name of God. Every name that we have of God, by the way, is just a description. But this is the formalized name of God that the Jewish men and women would use. And as a matter of fact, they had so much reverence for this particular word when they would read it in their uh, synagogues that they would not say Yahweh or however that would be pronounced. They would change it to Adonai because they weren't worthy to say that name. Now we have an idea of who is he. Who is his? It's not the same person. He shall see the travail of his soul. Who is his? Well, he's looking at the idea of this servant from this whole chapter. He, God, is going to see the travail of this servant's soul. He's going to see the difficult work. Travail, in the King James Version, for all you who are just word lovers, is a word that you know of as labor. I don't mean like a hard labor camp. Ladies and gentlemen, I mean like we're going to have a baby labor. Ladies who have had children, let me ask you a question. You just shake or nod. Painful? Some of you say no. Well, you know why? That little shot took care of a lot of that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Would you do it again? See, that's the weirdest thing in my mind. The most excruciating labor the body can go through, and the lady says, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Now you're beginning to understand the idea of travail. Do me a favor. Live right. Go to heaven. Look Jesus in his scarred face and ask him, would he do it again? You know what his answer would be? In a heartbeat. Why? Because he understands my value. And God will see the travail of Jesus' soul, the pain and the anguish in which his body is going, the mental and and internal struggle that his, his mind is having, and he'll be satisfied. Now, for a long time I had a problem with the idea of satisfaction here. Because I had the wrong idea in mind when I read it. God shall see the travail of Jesus' soul and his justice toward my sin will be satisfied. Not he's going to be satisfied because 
He is some sort of sadistic God who enjoys watching his child writhe in pain. That's, that's not it at all. This is the fact that the, the pain and agony that he's going through should be on me, and it should be due to my sin, and it is God who's going to wipe that away with the blood of his Son. He shall see the travail of his soul. And his justice toward my guilt and sin will be satisfied. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the fact given to us by the Apostle Paul through uh, the inspiration of God that it is, in, at the beginning, one perfect man sinned. That one named Adam. He was, he was from the ground, built by God. He was perfect. And it is the fact that it would take the blood of a perfect man to redeem us. And this is what we're looking at. The redemption of mankind seen by God in prospect and by His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Now don't leave on the table. Don't leave on the table this idea of justification. Here's why. The book of Romans deals a lot with the idea of justification, but very few times in the Old Testament is the word justify and justification used. So when it is used in the Old Testament, it's very specific. Notice what Jesus, or notice what Isaiah is speaking about in the entirety of the chapter. Here is the the crucifixion and death of Jesus, and that blood being shed, and it is through that blood that many will be justified. You know, it was Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, who also wrote that it is the sin of man that separates man and God. It's not God who, who can't reach out. It's not God who, who doesn't have a big enough shoulder. It's the sin of man who's separated between man and God. But in Isaiah 53, he gives us the answer for that sin. It's that sacrificial blood. That sacrificial blood makes up the difference between me and the throne of God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are justified by Jesus the Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. Notice this. Not only is that space taken up, but now I have the right to stand before the Creator and have my voice heard. Because I will stand before him, if you need to learn how to, or know how to remember justified, just if I'd never sinned. Just if I had never broken a law in front of him, just as if I had never violated any of his principles, I can stand and look him in his face and speak to him. It's all because of what happens in Isaiah 53. 
Because Jesus the Christ, that sacrifice, and that blood that's shed gives me that right. God shall see the travail of Jesus' soul. And his justice towards sin and guilt will be satisfied. And through that blood, many will be justified. As a matter of fact, the word many could be changed to this. And all who will accept it will be justified. It is offered for every single person on this earth, even now. Do you know it's offered for you? If you haven't accepted it, you know it's offered for you. That blood that was shed some 2,000 years ago on a cross is still accessible to you today, if you will, but be obedient. If you will, but hear what he has to say and believe those things. Repent. Be converted. Confess that Jesus is the Christ. Be baptized. Be added to the family of God. You can access that blood. Brother, sister, it may be the fact that you've already done those things. that you find yourself away from that fountain of blood. You find yourselves not living that life that, that God would have you live. What have you been offered? What exactly have you been offered by Satan that's better than eternal life? It's better than the guilt and uh, the, the punishment of sin being taken away from you. What have you been offered? Because I'm going to tell you, you're shortchanging your soul. You're selling it for less than the value that it has. Come back home to the God that knows the value of your soul and to the Christ who gave his life for the value of your soul. And do those things right now while we stand and sing for your encouragement. Praise our